welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of James Bowen and Commissioner of Police of the Metropolis, and the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 40. And this case that we're looking at this week comes with a lot of history attached to it. In fact, it dates back to December 2003, when four police officers, including James Bowen from this case, were involved in the arrest of suspected terrorist Baba Ahmed at his home. CCTV from the police station and a subsequent interview with the BBC showed that Ahmed had suffered serious injuries. While the police officers maintained that Ahmed had resisted arrest, Ahmed alleged that he had been assaulted, and so that was passed to the Independent Police Complaints Commission, or IPCC as they were known at the time. Almost a year later, in October 2004, it was decided that a single charge should be brought, but that was subsequently dismissed in April 2005. In the meantime, the names of all four officers were released by the IPCC to the public, and that unfortunately led to online threats of serious violence to the men and their families on a website that supported Baba Ahmed. Ahmed himself was disappointed by the outcome and began civil proceedings against the Commissioner of Police of the Metropolis on the basis that they were vicariously liable for the assaults that the officers had allegedly committed during the course of their employment. In preparation for this, the officers had a meeting with legal advisers who had been instructed on behalf of the Commissioner, but there was some confusion as the officers thought that the advisers would also be acting for them too. This was cleared up a year later when, in the second meeting, it was made clear that the legal team was only representing the interests of the commissioner. Ahmed's case went to court shortly afterwards, and the policeman decided against voluntarily giving evidence unless their identity was protected. From a legal point of view, this put the commissioner in a difficult position, and so the claim was settled in advance of a decision when the commissioner admitted liability and apologised for the harm caused. A key issue is that there was always going to be a fine line between the commissioner admitting their own vicarious liability and commenting on the guilt of the policeman. This was highlighted after the officers were acquitted within about an hour by a jury before Southwark Crown Court. The current case between the officers and the commissioner then began in 2013 when compensation was sought for reputational, economic and psychiatric damage on three grounds. Firstly, that there was a retainer between the officers and the legal team. Secondly, that the assurances given by the commissioner established a duty of care. And thirdly, that the duty amounted to a requirement by the commissioner to protect the welfare of the officers when dealing with the case brought by Baba Ahmed. In the Court of Appeal, the officers were partially successful when it was held that there was a duty of care that extended to how the litigation was carried out. This was questioned by the Commissioner, who appealed the case to the Supreme Court on that basis, and that's where we're going to pick things up. In theory, this case should be judged with regard to employment law, but police officers do not have a contract of employment. Nevertheless, there is a close analogy between the relationship of the Commissioner and the officers, compared with an employer and an employee. That may be true, but it is not enough by itself to establish the precise duty of care, that the officers say exists, and does not naturally arise from the implied term of mutual trust and confidence that underpins all employment relationships. At the start of this year, we looked at a case called Robinson and Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police, 
that discussed in great detail how a new duty could be established if it did not exist in previous case law. In essence, the courts will only recognise such a duty when there are previous related duties and the law edges forward slowly by comparison with those cases. It takes small steps rather than giant leaps. There are also other important considerations that must be taken into account, such as how public policy is affected and how the law ought to develop in a sensible and coherent fashion. With this in mind, a key decision that forms a part of understanding the case before us today is Calverley and Chief Constable of Merseyside Police from 1989. Here, several police officers brought a claim against their chief constable, alleging that the disciplinary procedure had been carried out in a negligent fashion. That claim failed, but the reason it did so is rather interesting. Lord Bridge cited public policy grounds and held that it was important for the police to be able to carry out disciplinary procedures, and that owing a duty of care in this situation might expose a situation where an officer investigating a crime ought rightly to be subject to disciplinary proceedings, and so it would be open to a suspect to bring their own negligence claim against the police. Given that a commissioner does not owe a duty with respect to their own disciplinary procedures, it would be difficult therefore to justify a duty with respect to claims by third parties where the officers are only indirectly involved. Overall, this mitigates against extending the duty of care on the basis of the rules set out in Robinson. However, the justices did also outline good policy reasons for not imposing a duty in these circumstances. When it comes to thinking about this somewhat controversial idea of the courts taking policy into account, the general rule is that it must be fair, just and reasonable to impose a duty, and so by implication, if the imposition were to be considered unfair, unjust or unreasonable, then a duty should not exist. In this scenario, the situation regarding Baba Ahmed might be the same for everyone involved, but the interests of the parties are clearly not aligned. The officers might be concerned about their reputational, economic and psychological welfare, but the commissioner, who is facing a vicarious liability claim, is going to be more interested in establishing a suitable defence that may well include arguing that the officers did commit a tortious act, albeit not in the course of their employment. Furthermore, there is a possibility that the Law Reform Contributory Negligence Act 1945 might come into play, and so if damages had to be paid to Baba Ahmed, there may be a dispute between the parties with regard to what proportion the commissioner should pay compared to the officers. Thus, while the court's use of policy reasons to justify an answer in this area can be a bit inconsistent at times, the scenario in this case presents a number of practical reasons why the imposition of a duty would just not be sensible or compatible with the other duties of the commissioner to the police force or indeed to the public at large. Finally, and before we finish up, it is worth mentioning another argument put forward by the officers in this case. Although only mentioned indirectly, there was a suggestion that because both parties ultimately wanted to see Ahmed's claim fail, the officers ought to be able to have access to relevant documents that the commissioner has but would not share with other parties or the public. So-called common interest privilege is a fascinating part of the law and essentially allows the court to treat the parties with a common interest as one and the same. Although this started off as being of rather limited application in Butte's Gas and Oil Company and Hammer No. 3 from 1981, 
has been widened in recent years to cover a range of common interests, such as insurance, agency and neighbours. However, the problem for James Bowen and the other respondents was not necessarily the relationship, but rather the common interest itself. The Supreme Court held that the privilege does not automatically apply because two or more parties want to see the same outcome from litigation, and other things like lawyer-client confidentiality are likely to take precedent in situations like this that aren't exactly black and white. When it comes to analysing this case, it can either be very simple or much more complicated. On the one hand, the decision not to extend the duty of care is straightforward enough when we think about this case in conjunction with the Robinson decision from earlier this year. It might not seem fair on the surface, but it is important that a line is drawn in the employment relationship between employers and employees. This is something that I emphasise in my upcoming labour law course, and as one judge noted, the parties to the contract are both adults and should not be treated as parent and child. Of course, the employer does have serious duties in relation to things like health and safety, equality and discipline, etc. But that does not confer a general responsibility for the overall welfare of the employee, even in the context of the workplace. On the other hand, this shouldn't detract from the wider issues that form a background to this case. For a start, police officers do have much more limited employment rights compared to the average person. The police federation may have some of the appearance of a union, but they are much less powerful than this and are not in a commanding position when it comes to requests for greater rights, not least because they are not allowed to strike. In some ways this makes sense because their role in society is to protect the public and investigate crime, so if they didn't do that for an extended period of time then we could end up in a situation like those purge films. However, this is also problematic because it makes it very difficult for law enforcement to properly advocate for their needs, and given the inherent dangers that go along with the job, this too is much more of an issue compared with other employment situations. This was highlighted recently when the budget was delivered in the House of Commons, and police funding was ignored, aside from a small pot of funding that went through towards counter-terrorism. The number of police officers has gone down by 20,000 since 2010, and the consequences of this is a sharp reduction in the number of arrests, and victim confidence in the justice system is hitting new lows. Even areas such as counter-terrorism suffer because much of their intelligence comes from local officers working closely with communities. The Police Federation can publicly complain about this, but that is just about the fullest extent of the pressure that they can exert. Meanwhile, officers are much more sparsely distributed throughout our towns and cities, and do not have the time or resources to devote to other important parts of police work such as neighbourhood engagement and crime prevention that stem disorder in the longer term. In this case, we saw that police officers do not get special dispensation in relation to employment rights, but when we think about the unique features of this difficult job, perhaps there is an argument that in certain areas, they should get additional protection if that is not going to come from the government. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. A quick reminder that my commercial law course is also available currently on my website, that's uklawweekly.com, and then you go to videos and commercial is available there. So that's not on YouTube, but you can get that through a service called Gumroad, and you are able to download the PowerPoint presentations as well as the videos themselves. 
Anyway, I'll be back with another case next week. But in the meantime, bye.